0: Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Kleeger, The Economist.
1: And I'm Peter Kondjayan, The Grower.
0: Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to this episode of The Grower and the Economist. This week, we are joined by special guest expert, Dr. Maria Marshall. She is a professor at Purdue in economics. She is the James and Louise Ackerman Endowed Chair of the Agricultural Economics. And she is the director of the Purdue Institute for Family Business, among several other hats that she wears. And while I studied at Purdue, she was my academic advisor. So, welcome, Maria. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. And so, what drew you to family businesses?
2: When I first started at Purdue, my title was Rural Business Development and a lot of it revolved around entrepreneurship and starting businesses. And I think there's a myth that businesses start one person starting on their own, pulling themselves by their bootstraps, and quickly realize that without family support, family money, no businesses get started, not even Apple, <laughs> which started in their garage. It really made me think about how important these family connections and that support of family, whether it's financial or mental, is really important for entrepreneurs. And then as a business starts, I would say their infancy, then as they mature, and then as they think about that transition as they get either growing or the incumbent is going to retire, that becomes, again, another kind of flex point where the family would come in. And as an economist, I'm interested in this exchange of resources. And so when I was thinking about that, I was like, well, when a disaster strike, whether it's a normative disaster, you would have a divorce, a death, something like that, or non-normative disasters. So you get hit by a hurricane or a tornado or, or some kind of natural disaster, pandemic. Um, there's an exchange of resources that happens between the family and the business. And a good way to say that was these kind of shocks of thinking about what comes first and what has to give and what are those flex points for family businesses?
0: Just that breakdown of normative versus non-normative. I think we all like to think about things that are within our control. So that discomfort in general of thinking about disasters and death and pandemic and national disasters, how they impact businesses very differently. And, and then just that interaction between our personal lives and our professional lives and how they're even more intertwined when it is a family business. Part of the reason that we wanted to have you on the show our audience is small and medium-sized growers and so as you said that entrepreneur that rural development those are people that are likely working with family members and so just making sure that they continue to have resources again as there are so many shocks in the system in general and then the pandemic just isn't helping
1: maria as you describe some of these uh, situations that family businesses find themselves in Being a member of one myself, my opening generalization that when things are going well, everything's fine, it's easy, but it can turn on a dime depending on what challenge hits us.
2: That's exactly right. And I have this little motto, I'm sure it's not mine, but I picked it up somewhere of like policies before problems. (laughs) So when times are good, that's the time to kind of reflect um, policies that don't in that particular time affect anybody in general. Let's say prenuptial agreements, thinking about what that means in terms of protecting a business asset and that has nothing to do with the marriage itself. So you don't want to do it while somebody's walking down the aisle to say, oh, by the way, now we need a prenup. And then they're like, oh, why don't you like my spouse? You might want to say, this is a policy we have to protect a business asset, which everybody has to comply with. It's a policy that doesn't affect anybody at any particular time. Uh, job descriptions, since some things are very sometimes very simple, to the more complicated, where you sit and think about what you want to have in place that you, you would have when times are good, so that when something happens, you have something in place. You've thought about it, at least.
1: That also applies to the succession planning part of this, right? Oh, I actually think you should start
2: thinking about what the succession plan looks like or what you would envision very early. If you were an entrepreneur starting today, I would say start day one. What is your exit strategy? So if you have a family business and retirement would be the exit strategy of some kind, maybe, What does that look like and how do you bring your kids along from a very young age, in some instance, to love the business, understand the business, if they're not going to be managers to be competent owners because they understand some sense of the business and that starts very early actually. Some people want to say, well, my kids are only teenagers. So I'm like, "Oh, start now." <laughs> right? Don't wait until they're 30 and then you're asking them, "Do you want to come back or are you or 20? Are you now interested in the business?" Well,
1: that's very insightful and it's what we as family business operators need to hear over and over again. We need the reps. We we need to keep hearing it from people like you to help guide us. Tell me the way that I was taught the succession planning, Maria, some of the terminology that that I learned was uh, first the founder's generation, and then the next we call the sibling rivalry generation, and passing from founder to siblings or children is, there, is something like 50% failure rate. And then the third generation is, I was uh, taught that it's the cousin consortium. Generation and handing it or making it to that generation is only a one in ten chance of success.
2: That's exactly right.
1: It's the founding
2: generation. Uh, sometimes, depending on where it is, I might call it the incumbent generation. And then it goes to sibling partnership instead of sibling rivalry. <laughs> and then it is the cousin consortium. And then I use the old rap song. You know, instead of more pe- more money, more problems; more people, more problems. <laughs>
0: My dad and my grandfather had done a business and then they closed. When my grandfather passed, they did not particularly have a succession plan lined up. But my brother and I were always there. Like there was never an expectation that we would be part of the business. But like, that's where I went after school. It was a meat business. I was allowed to set up a green market, a farmer's market stand in the 90s and try to sell meat. And so it's always been invited and part of our lives, even though there wasn't this expectation. And When my dad and I talked about it a couple months ago, I was like, what would it take? What would it look like? And like, it came from me and it was a powerful moment for him that like, I might be interested and I don't think I know what it entails yet, but just being around it all those years, I do think open that window. And I do think that in a lot of industries in agriculture that like, people don't realize that grew up in it, how much information they had. Like I talked to somebody that, family was a regional distributor in Indiana, and he, you know, wants to change the world and make sensors and stuff. And I'm like, but agriculture needs more regional distribution, like go do what you know. And I wonder if children or grandchildren or cousins can be that place where we retain some of the knowledge that we've lost more recently. And that could be an avenue but it sort of doesn't address any of what that looks like or how to get there or how to build it and and those harder questions.
1: Maria, an observation for you to comment on. Of my age, I lost my parents in the last several years and we grew up on a farm together, built a greenhouse operation together, spent our lives together. I took a detour through the academic world, through grad school and, and university life In the early part of my career, but then found my way back to the family. So, oftentimes, when I'm engaged in a conversation with friends who have lost parents, I'm very careful not to say I was closer to my parents than you were. But I I do feel that because I not only lived with them or had them as parents but I worked with them and had them as business partners, there was another layer on the relationship.
2: I think the loss is different in that when it is so interwoven, it's the loss of a parent and a partner. And both of those can bring a lot of grief in and of themselves. And it's that loss of the day-to-day interaction with that partner that also happens to be your parent as well. It's like a double loss. The same grief that you have with your siblings of losing a parent, but it's compounded by the grief of losing a partner and a day-to-day person where you miss to see them every day if you had a cup of coffee. And I talk to farm families all the time. It's the cup of coffee in the morning where everybody got together and might have talked about what's going to happen that day. That is something that not every adult child has with their parent. I talk to my, my mother probably normally a lot, but a couple, three times a week. <laughs> and maybe with my sibling twice a week, which is, for some families, that seems like a lot. But it's still not the same as every single
1: day. Your words are both insightful and comforting. Michelle and I are focusing much of this podcast on small growers, Maria, small and medium-sized farmers and greenhouse operators. And I'd say the majority of these cases, as as you probably encounter, these are family units that are running them. And as we explore the locally grown food movement, I want to see more small family farms take up space in this movement. I think you do as well. And I know Michelle does as well. So the topic that you're helping us wrap our arms around today is so, so important because the challenges are enormous. They're, they're harder today, I think, than when my father started the greenhouse operation in 1960.
2: Keeping land in agriculture in and of itself is going to require farm families to do succession planning and do it with eyes wide open and understand how The things that you're doing, strategic planning things that you're doing actually affects that succession process and understand these kind of dual objectives of, you know, the incumbent and the successor generation and being able to kind of walk those through. And, you know, I get these. Everybody wants to talk about what kind of legal structure do I need? And I'm like, no succession plan ever failed over a legal structure. It's the not talking about it that's going to cause it to fail because the LLC won't talk for you.
0: So then are there resources that you recommend for people? It, it does feel easy to really think about the, the legal and the technicalities, but getting people in a room to talk. So how do you encourage farm families to get in the room and have these conversations?
2: Don't do it over Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's another one. <laughs> it really falls, I think, on the incumbent generation to start the conversations and to say, hey... This is what I was thinking. What What are your plans? What do you envision is going to happen? And how do you envision coming back and, and starting those conversations early? And I, I think there's sometimes an assumption that the non-farm child has no interest. And then you start the conversations and halfway through, they're like, oh, but I, I do have an interest right? And so nobody ever talks to that, that child. <laughs> There's just a lot of assumptions made. And so starting those conversations that say, hey, we want to come, we're going to bring anybody together and now we can do it over Zoom. So everybody doesn't have to be at the kitchen table per se and start having this, you know, we want this to be a family business. That's, I think that's the first thing. Is that what people want? Now, how do we envision that we can make this, do that going forward? And, and, and start laying these things on the table and being open to getting, getting feedback back to figure out what, you, what you're going to envision. And really, I always say the sky's the limit of how you can make structure it. It's really what you envision. Then you can go to a lawyer and a tax account and see like, what do we do need to do formally to make this happen? But how do you envision this becoming a family business, being part of the family wealth, if you want to think about it that, that way?
1: That's a great way to put it. And, you know, that the two of you being economists and Michelle, this this is what the, the beauty of our relationship, grower and economist, Maria went, and Michelle's referred to this in the past and you did a minute ago. When we focus on keeping land in agriculture, that's an important point. And, and as growers, We don't think of it that way often enough, so we need people like you and Michelle to strip it down to just the facts and bring to our attention, this is as much about keeping this piece of property productive and in agriculture, whether it's your family or you sell it to another farmer, that is an an important goal, that's a high priority, But we we don't often think of it that way. We're thinking about just getting from season to season and year to year and paying the mortgage.
2: Succession planning seems so big and so uncertain and so risky. And I, I can understand that it's something that in some ways we do once or twice in a lifetime. If you're a successor, if you're the second generation, you do it once with your parents and then maybe one other time again with your children or cousin or whatever, other family member you might bring by or non-family member that you might bring in. But it's something that doesn't happen every day. You do a business plan every year. You might think of marketing every year, but succession is this process that takes on average six years from like for implementation, not just the discussion and can has a lot of uncertainty. It doesn't happen that often. And so and a lot of things can go wrong. And so it is kind of this thing of like, I'm just going to push it back or I'll let them handle it when I'm gone. I I don't want to deal with
0: this now. I have to tell you that that six years number shocked me when you just said it. That feels like such a large amount of planning or more planning than most people think. And I'm guessing it's not intensive work during the six years. And it makes sense, right? You need six years to build relationships or understand what's going on or change leases or, you know, that it's not long in the landscape of a business. But to have the foresight to say, okay, like, I'm going to do this, but it's really not going to happen for six years feels very difficult for humans to do. And I assume that even people that do want to start succession planning don't start early enough is what I would take away from that.
2: Oh, and that's the six years of implementation. That's not the planning part. Because succession doesn't happen right away. It's not within like, oh, okay, I'm gonna sign off all the paperwork and the incumbent goes off to Tahiti, right? (laughs) So we have a really great roadmap that says, okay, what's the year that that we're starting? So the incumbent might be 55 and the successor is, let's say 35. And it's gonna take us six years. And every year you plan out, this is how maybe the board or governance right there they then I'll see they might have a CEO or a secretary or something. Those are that kind of board management things. Here's how ownership will change over the course of that time. Here are the functional responsibilities that will change over the course of that time and any other kind of like miscellaneous dividends or any of those things that might need to happen. When I was teaching a family business course, and it was all farm kids and they're in college and they're all going back to their family business, family farms. And they have put out this roadmap and go to their parents and say, okay, when are we going to start? And believe me, when they realize that they are at T15, so it's going to be 15, 20 years before they have complete ownership, some kind of rethink do I need to come right back or should I be interning somewhere else? You know, and one of them had tea, grandpa passes away, right? It's like <laughs> grandpa's still there. So it's a very great way to envision what that really means when you're implementing the succession plan, which I think is where a lot of people stumble. It's like you get through all the talking and then it's like, okay, now we actually have to do this.
1: You guys are bringing up time and how long it takes to implement and plan it and all. And it brings to mind an analogy. I recently saw a, a Walt Disney special on TV, and it was before he passed away when he was opening up the Florida location. And he made a comment opening it that, welcome, we will never be finished here. It's never going to be built because it's going to continue to change and with time. I think that's
2: right. It's the way you make decisions with your kids today in the small things that will help you figure out how you can make decisions in the big things. If you've always been an autocratic decision maker and they've never had input on, like, what are we going to eat today? Where are we going on vacation? How would then, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, are they going to make really big decisions? with you, not just for you, if they've, you've never kind of cultivated that as a family. So it's like it really is constantly that family part is a big deal. And how you make decisions, even your definition of fair in the family translates to what's fair and how you think about the business. Is it everyone's equal according to needs, according to contribution? What does fair really look like? If it's always been everybody gets the same, no matter what their contribution was or what their needs were, that's usually the way the estate plan and the business goes. Everybody gets the same. Everybody makes the same money, no matter what their contribution, no matter what their needs.
0: When you ask somebody to define fair, I think we all have a gut feeling of what that is. And so the fact that you took it a step farther and said, is it based on everybody gets the same or everybody gets what they need? And- That's like the first place it forces people to think. And my dad's side of the family was everybody gets the same. So my grandmother for Christmas, everybody got a hundred dollars worth. And if your outfit was $96, you got a pair of socks. Like it was always fair. And my mom's side is much more, not unfair, but there was just a lot more fluid. Like you picked out this thing you really wanted. It doesn't matter. Or you need this thing. I'm willing to spend a little bit more. And so- Just the assumptions before you start that we all agree on FAIR, that we all agree on the timeline. And then when it gets more complicated, have the same visions for the business or have the same risk tolerance. We start from this place where we think we're on the same page. We're not. And then you do get to one of these crisis points. And that's where you see the explosion.
1: Maria, another question on the sibling stage or generation. How do you anticipate or or work into succession planning? At some point in the future, perhaps one or more siblings may choose to cash out or leave the business.
2: That's always the ideal is to say, how do you buy one person out of the business? And it depends also on the type of legal structure, how easy or hard that can be yeah that's always very hard because it's a matter of like how much cash flow people have right That's where finances come into play because if everything's going well and you can buy them out without a problem, then there's no problem. Usually there's more discussion when, oh, it's it's gonna be hard for us and the business. It's hard for the business or that that the other people who have equity to buy that person out. And so, how do you make that transition and make that happen in a way that's equitable for both sides?
1: So, is this observation accurate, Maria? That in Michelle and I are constantly talking about profit margin and and how difficult it is for a small operation to stay in business. So, given that as the backdrop, it's really hard for remaining siblings to buy out others because it's not a very profitable industry to begin with
2: ideally if the incumbent would have known that one of them wasn't interested in the business they would have done some other estate planning things to not give that business so that's the one thing i start with like figure out which of your kids is interested in the business and a which my mom loves it when i say this you don't owe your kids anything start off with that (laughs) Then who's going to maintain the business? Because the person who's been working or people who've been working in that business actually have made that business more successful. And so when you then cut it in threes, you're actually penalizing the two that have actually made that business more successful and it worth what it is. And so figuring out how do you structure it so that the business stays intact with the people that continue to run it and own it. And then figure out some other estate planning issues. If you feel like it has to be equal, everybody gets the same for that other child that is not going to be a part of the business. And I think with farming also, you have the compounding of like, well, the land is our legacy. And yeah, I'm going to give you all this bit, the business part, and then I'm going to divide the land in threes. And you're like, well, great. Now you've just basically taken the floor. Basically any at any time somebody can pull the rug right underneath the business. So thinking about, well, they always will be a stakeholder because they will always have a land legacy there, but they don't have to have ownership or putting in a trust where somebody can't pull the rug out from it. So yeah, that's where the envisioning what that might look like comes in and setting up legal structures to protect the business. I think farmers do sometimes a poor job protecting that business and that legacy, expecting that everybody's gonna get along. Of course, everybody's going to not have other incentives, but uh, somebody who's not farming, who's not part of the business, has other needs and other things they wanna do. And now you've given them an asset and they're not really that interested in the asset. They're interested in the money from that asset because they have another life to lead. And it's not anything that's wrong, it's just some different priorities. And thinking that everybody's not going to have the same priority.
0: Well, and just the value of the land, I feel like is such a huge cornerstone. And it doesn't really matter where you are. If you're in Massachusetts, it might be a smaller parcel of land, but you're still talking about a lot of money. And in the, the conversations that then happen around absentee landowners. And I wonder how much of that happens because it was divided, like you said. The land was divided in three ways. And one of the children left and, you know, is still kind of involved from afar. The value of the land comes up a lot in how do we pay for it or how do we pay the taxes or just like you said, borrowing it against it or selling it to fund something else when the business is dependent, the farm business is dependent on that asset.
2: Yeah, I think because there is such a family legacy on land as well, the thing that other non-farm family businesses, if you have a building, there might not be quite a bit of attachment on a building. There may or may not be, depending on how long it's been, but you wouldn't say to somebody, "Well, I'm going to give you a third of the building. That the business depends on. You're probably that building is part of the business's assets. It's you're either an owner of the business or you're not. They're not going to just separate the building away from the whole other business. But yet in farms, we tend to do that. It's uh, you get machinery and all this, and then all of a sudden that building or that asset gets subdivided. So it's a, it's a different thing. It's not considered that's part of that business per se. It's always somehow considered a separate asset, even though they're completely integrated. You, well, you can farm if you don't have land, but it's, you kind of need the land to farm <laughs> in terms of like being, you know, you don't have to own it to farm it.
1: You talk about land as a resource, as an asset. We don't, don't often use those words in a daily setting. Um, And it's good to hear them from experts like yourselves. I find, Maria, Michelle has often heard me ask a question, why in this country does our food have to be so cheap? Why can't farmers make a healthy living? Wouldn't we all be better off eating less food but higher quality food? So that is a backdrop. Now I'm going to make a, a comment. Many of us, as we approach retirement, If the business isn't going to be handed off to others, selling that land is our retirement security. That's sad. That that works against what you're saying earlier. We need to protect legacies and keep land in agriculture. But in my mind, something's broken in our system that everything has to be dirt cheap, and we can't pay our farmers a high enough profit margin to not only make it from day to day and month to month, but be able to put kids through college and save for retirement.
2: If you do not have a financial plan to retire, you're basically saying that land is your retirement plan and your successor needs to buy you out. And so that, right, so then the successor needs to have either the business needs to do well so that they can make enough money to be able to do that, Or they have to have an off-farm job. Now you have to be close enough for them to have an off-farm job. Now are they an owner and come once in a while to help? That's where you start seeing everything we're seeing today of off somebody, everybody, somebody needing to have an off-farm job to be able to stay on the farm. And all of these things are very intertwined. (laughs) We could go on forever. (laughs) But yeah, that's how it affects succession planning and the land staying in agriculture. Because if you can't save for retirement, that business is your retirement. So either your kid buys you out or you're going to sell it.
1: So the last thing that that I'd like to hear from you about, Maria, I use the phrase family business matriarch. And I use my my experience, my life with my mom. And And I'm pleased to say that times are changing. So gender bias is is still with us, but it's we're kind of trying to tamp it down. But uh, going through my life, 60s and 70s and 80s, my dad and mom were a team, as as you would describe in any family operation, equal. If anything, if it wasn't equal, Maria, if, if anything, it was more my mom than my dad. He had a part-time outside job until the greenhouse business grew to a point where he could quit, but he was more of the face of the business at conferences and extension meetings, et cetera. But I came to learn when I returned to the family business after grad school and and trying to build my life and bring my kids up in the environment I grew up in, that the matriarch, that position is the glue that holds it together. And I was fortunate. My mom and I had similar brainwave thinking. We could finish each other's sentences in terms of bedding plants and the the production. And so I was blessed to have that type of a working relationship with my mother. So to this day, that word matriarch to me in an agricultural setting is the most important position in the family.
2: Many times overlooked, somehow, I can give you an example that uh, when I have my students do this family, you know, they're talking about succession and going back and all this other stuff, I have them do the what we call the three circles model is talk about the who's in the ownership circle, who's in the family circle, and who's in the business circle. And then you kind of Venn diagram the ones in the middle, so that mom and dad in some ways are in all three their family, their owners, and they're usually the mom in a farm business is doing all the finances. If we stick to gender, gendered roles of traditional gendered roles, it's that. So it's a, actually a huge part of <laughs> giving the finances. So, and I tell my students, you know, they tended to be mostly male. And I'm like, uh, why didn't you talk about your mom and all this stuff like that? Is she not in that in that circle? It's not just your dad's decision. You say that this is co-owned. And yeah, I've seen that people start this process and it's the dad talking to his two sons. And all of a sudden there's, you know, the mom says, oh no, this is not gonna happen, over my dead body. You know, there's a research paper that says over my dead body, right? And uh, puts a kibosh on everything because they've got a non-farm sibling that they've basically decided to pair out without talking to them or anything, right? So kind of these dark scenarios, but I, I think that, yes, we need to think of farm businesses as co-preneurships is what we would call, co- which are two people working day to day in the business. And that's what usually farms are, are co-preneurships. And that it's not about the retirement of one person. It's the retirement of two people, which actually makes the succession process harder because it's two people that have to be mentally and financially ready to go. We have these quadrants about like, are you ready to go? You know, are you rich and ready to go, right? The ideal. (laughs) We find that people are rich, but don't, you know, mentally not that ready to go. But even if they had the financial wherewithal, because this has implications for the successor. If you're 25 or 30 and your parents are 55 or 60, they're probably still in the stay and grow stage. They're not ready to go or financially ready to go. And so that has implications for how long you're going to be working, as you you said, with your parents as partners as you buy into this business. It's not a six-year succession process, it's a 20-year succession process that you're working on. And so, yeah, I think that under if we understand that it's copreneurs that have been working in this business together as founders for a long time, that the partnership started at the marriage and the founding of the business. The partnership isn't the sibling partnership. You're actually talking out of a partnership that, of founders that then is going to transfer to maybe another sibling partnership that is going to work very differently because siblings were very differently than spouses. Siblings have their own spouses and their own loyalties and their own things that they need to worry about. And so they have these divided, more divided loyalties than that first partnership that just had each other. And so that's where it starts to to play in.
0: You've pointed out a lot of landmines and a lot of places, potentially, that people can get ahead of it, but not focusing, I guess, on the landmines. Are there good ways that people do navigate this? Is it really just being open and transparent and having conversations early?
2: Well, family businesses are the best. They are shown to be more resilient more profitable longer lasting we say third generation might not you know go it's only one in ten but if it's not a family business it doesn't get to even the second generation so now we're talking in farms a hundred years 50 years 30 years that's a very long lasting business and it's the opportunity to work with your family which is wonderful i think and is usually the ultimate goal right finances is an input to a family business not an output because the in, the output is i work with my family and i have this legacy and the input is i have the profits and the finances to be able to do that so it's a different completely different mindset for a, a completely non family business that's the fi- profit is the output and i think that having i'm going to call it a culture of collaboration in your family business will last a long way into getting through all these landmines because if you have open communication and people can have hard conversations and you can develop that skill no that's not a skill that everybody is born with it can really go a long way and these things don't become landmines because i think they become landmines when people don't talk so we asked this question so how often do you does succession or talking about succession become a problem and people are like never and i'm like "Eh." so we asked and they were like uh how often do you talk about it? Only when we need to. right? So, so it's getting to talk, openly talk about it, that it's not a bad thing to talk about succession and working together. And what does that look like? And what are our different goals? And, and how do we mesh that is thinking about that as a fun activity, and not a kind of Oh, it's we're we're talking about death or retirement or something like that. It, it starts way before that.
0: We really appreciate your time. I think that both of us learned a lot. It felt like just opened the eyes, right? It wasn't a nitty gritty, get into the details, learn everything, but it was this introduction. And so listeners that haven't had these conversations or are thinking about them, hopefully start down this journey to avoid these landmines and I love that having hard conversations is a skill that you can get better at. To me, that makes it less scary because we all do really hard things and they get easier over time. So the fact that this isn't always going to be hard is comforting. So I guess, is there anything else you want to share or any resources that we should point listeners to?
2: Well, I would say you're welcome to go to the Institute's website, which is purdue.ag fambiz
0: Thank you so much for joining us and we hope to have you back again soon.